Hey everybody, this is Eric Krasno and you are listening to the Plus One Podcast. And uh, I want to thank everybody for tuning in, everybody that's been spreading the word about the show, and also everyone that got out there and voted. It seems that Biden and Harris have won the presidential election. And of course, everyone in my house is very happy about this. But I think it's also important to acknowledge that we had a larger voter turnout than ever before on both sides, red and blue. And I think it demonstrates a few things. I think one thing is that people are motivated right now. The younger people are getting out there to vote. And uh, it also shows that our country is heavily divided. And that is something we're going to have to work on and something that we're just beginning to deal with. Um, And, you know, I'm not saying Biden's the perfect choice for president, but in my opinion, we needed change and we needed to bring our country back together. An interesting thing happened this morning. I posted a little clip of video of Van Jones um, talking about Biden winning the election, and it's very emotionally charged. And he talks about, as a father, that being a good man and being accountable matters. And I think that was very poignant to me, um, and I posted that. And it was interesting to see all of the response. Um, I did not expect to see such a charged response from the people that follow me. Um, Most of the people that I know obviously feel the same way as I do, but there was definitely some blowback from people that are either Trump supporters or just don't support the system at all. And I think it's important to note that I wasn't really coming out for Biden, although I do think he is the right choice in this particular matter. But it was really about moving towards unity, trying to bring people together from from both sides. I think our current administration has brought people out of the woodwork that now feel that it's okay to show their racism outwardly and to show their prejudice against other people that aren't like themselves. But what I took away from this is that social media can be so polarizing and I am actually interested in a conversation with the people that are commenting here um, and they were just so angry um, and not willing to really converse about it. A couple of the comments said musicians and actors shouldn't express their opinions and should just be quiet and I thought that was interesting too. I consider myself a fan before an artist. You know, I became an artist, but all of the artists that I look up to and respect do speak their mind, and a lot of that is in their music. Um, You know, I think I'm a little torn on that. I don't like to put my politics before the music. You know, I really got into music because it makes me feel good, and I realized in turn I want to make other people feel good with my music. But, you know, I don't think that people should turn off their emotion and turn off how they feel. But I'm curious how you feel about this, because there's a lot of people out there that just want their music to be music and their politics to be politics. So if you have an opinion on this, I actually think it's an interesting conversation. Uh, So chime in, krasplus1 at gmail.com, and uh, we can address it on the next show. But meanwhile, I think it's okay to celebrate, and it makes me feel good to see people, you know, hearing some good news in 2020, seeing people out in the streets celebrating, and um, celebrating unity and bringing people together. And as Biden says, he is going to be everyone's president, even the voters that did not vote for him. 
Um, so by me expressing my opinion on this matter does not mean I hate you for supporting Trump. And I think that's also an important thing to say. Um, if you decide to unfollow me or not listen to me, that is totally up to you. But I do hope that this is a turning point for us as a nation to be open to conversation and accepting one another and trying to fix the division in our country. So now let's just get into this episode. This was one of my favorite interviews that I've been able to do since I started this podcast. My guest on the show today is one of my favorite musicians. He introduced me to the banjo, to be totally honest, introduced me to a lot of bluegrass music, some of his projects, including Bela Fleck and the Fleck Tones and Strength in Numbers, were staple um, projects and albums in my collection. I drove all the way across the country the year that I graduated high school with my two close friends to go see Strength in Numbers and Bela Fleck at the Telluride Bluegrass Festival, and it was a life-changing experience. He's done so many amazing projects. He's got 20-something Grammy nominations and 15 wins, and he's actually been nominated in the most categories of any artist in history. Going through his catalog before this interview was an incredible journey into so many different genres, all with an instrument that many people consider exclusive to bluegrass and country music. He's made funk music, jazz music. He brought the banjo to Africa and traveled all across Africa, um, tracing the roots of the banjo and collaborating with incredible musicians from Tanzania and Mali and Gambia. And you can watch all of that in his documentary, Throw Down Your Heart, which is really an amazing watch, super informative and very inspiring. I'd like to give a quick shout out to Osiris Media. They help me produce this podcast and they have a lot of other great content that you can find at osirispod.com. I'd also like to congratulate my folks at headcount.org. They helped register a million voters this year that all participated in this election. I'm very excited to get into this discussion with Bela, but first we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. An amazing songwriter, arranger, composer, producer, 15-time Grammy winner, and has changed the way the entire world looks at the banjo. I'd like to welcome today's Plus One, Bela Fleck. Cool, man. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. Um, and yeah, it's been a crazy time because I wouldn't wish any of the bad stuff on anyone. But I feel like, yeah, as musicians, we get to dig into that that list of things we're always hoping that we can do or thinking about in the back of our minds, you know? Yeah. Although when you've got two kids and child care is hard to come by, the drama is like finding the time to work. And so we've gone in and out, like we've had periods where we had great people helping that were really, we felt really safe about. Like we, one of our kids is um, um, at higher risk right. with COVID because he has a liver issue. Um, so we've been super careful. So, so finding the right people that are safe and fit in right. has been hard and they've come and gone. Like some people who were great had to leave. And so yeah. there's been periods where I could go downstairs and work five days a week for eight hours and that was all my time in this period where I couldn't work at all for like a month. And that drove me pretty wiggy. I'm yeah. learning that as we speak. I have a five week old and my studio is just right behind my house. Same kind of deal. Yeah. So I come in here and you know, it's 
come a knocking, you know, I, which I love, but you know, yeah. there's, it's also that, uh, when you try to get in your little cave and work, it's, it's, it can be tough, you know? Well, it's about a balance because I want, I want to be the kind of a father who my son can come in when I'm working and I'll stop and spend some time with him. But, uh, if I haven't been able to work for a month, that's a little harder. I get real, um, grabby about that time. I'm like, Oh, you can't this, I need this time. You know, I try to yeah. be nice. But I'm like so frantic for it because I, it's like breathing or something. I feel the same way. We've been having those discussions too. Cause yeah. allotting the time is hard because it's kind of mm-hmm. like you want that flow of like in and out, but then, you know, it's, it's, uh, also crucial. And if you don't address that and make the time, eventually it, it does get to you. Yeah. It, it, and it's interesting because I don't really miss touring the way I thought I would. Uh, um, I miss some of my friends that I play with and I like those relationships, but I love the time with my family. But the one great thing for me is I, I have like three, four, I guess, really strong projects that were recorded that needed me to mix and edit and finish. Right. I've got like a double album of bluegrass with the top people that I've, I haven't done a bluegrass record since 96. And it's, uh, it's, wow. it's a real... It's a screamer. I'm really excited about it. So I've been oh, cool. mixing and editing a double album of that. And then I have a project with Edgar Meyer and Zakir Hussain, wow. which is a really neat uh, classical with Indian, with bluegrass, you know, just one of those nowhere, doesn't really fit anywhere, but is absolutely awesome. And oh, so that cool. one I got to go back in on and we recorded it not, never knowing when we were going to finish it. Now I've been working on it. Right, right. And then I've been uh, working with Chick Corea and sending things back and forth. And we've done some, created some stuff from scratch. And we've also got a bunch of touring with new new music we did last year. Right. And so I've been going through those shows and seeing if they're, if we've got the new tunes at a level where they're put outable. And, you know, there's lots of great stuff there. So, it's, so there was those three things. And then I have an orchestra project that I, you know, pretty much finished but didn't didn't totally finish. So those are four things that when I come downstairs, I'm in playland and then people send me stuff yeah, yeah. like the blind yeah, boys of, of Alabama sent me some stuff and there was a UN project. And I don't know, there's been five or six, you know, really cool things. And are you, are you really content just being in your studio? If you could have that choice? I mean, obviously in the in normal times, uh, playing with actual people live, um, would be different, but do you, you don't really miss the traveling and the, uh, the the living on the the bus or plane or van or whatever you know i I, i've always enjoyed that perfectly well but i don't miss it i mean it's supplanted by all this quality time with my family um and of course you know they're used to me coming and going i'm used to coming and going so it's it's intense sometimes because there's no relief yeah Um, you're always together and that's harder on a relationship than if you're coming if you come back and everyone can get excited and sort of you can sort of appreciate it all over again but if you're always there so, I mean, I think as great as it is to be together this much, a little bit, I mean, going downstairs and working and then coming back up, I just love the morning with them and I love yeah. the evening with them. And then I know I'm going to get my time. Um, but um, I, yeah, I think I think I'll miss miss them more. I mean, that was always the, the scary thing for me about having kids is I never thought I would really want to travel. And yeah. so I put it off and put it off and put it off. But it was part of me and Abby's deal is that we were going to have kids. So she was, yeah. if you're not interested in kids, this relationship doesn't work because I, I want to. So I had agreed to it. So I was like, well, we better do it before I get too old. Right. But uh, so that part of it is, is true. I was right. It's, it's much harder for me to, you know, want to get on the road and go do anything for very long. 
anyway. But one of the great things about your relationship is you guys obviously make records together and, and perform yeah. together. And so what is the touring like when uh, when you guys go out? Do you bring the kids or is it oh, kind of yeah. like it changes? It's great. I mean, it's great. I and mean, the thing is, we've done a lot of that um, since Juno was born. We've done a ton of it and really enjoyed it. Um, but, but this year things were starting to come back around, like me playing with other people that I hadn't done for a long time, like, like the Flectones, right. um, I've had a significant uh, set of dates on the books and, uh, and playing with Edgar and Zakir and date, doing the dates with Chick Corea, which are things that, you know, I ought to be doing right. to some extent because that's, you know, I'm for, so fortunate that I get to play with people on that level. And so, and the, and the family, we don't have a new record or anything. So we, but we love to go out and play, right. but with a second child, it's a lot more tricky. And then there's school right, now, which you know, in seven, yeah. um, you know, there's different uh, requirements. We can't just keep them out of school as much as we want. So we've been restricting it anyway. Yeah. So I think it's going to work out good when things come back to normal in that, uh, it'll be a, a, a more balanced thing for my musical point of view. Uh, and that I would go out for a couple of weeks with the Flectones and then I'd go out with Abby and be with the family. And then I might go out with, you know, whoever and do, do different, different special things. But, um, but it wouldn't be all one thing. It wouldn't be like I go out for the year with the Flectones right, right. or something. But, um, the Bluegrass Band, I really want to promote this record. So I had, I've had a couple of tours, really strong lineups of people booked to, to play that we had to cancel, like with Billy Strings and Sierra Hall. Oh, and I love people. Billy Strings. Billy Strings was on the show and I've been friends with him uh for yeah, he's a while awesome. he's he so played on great. the new record oh on, he uh, did it's basically like five bands cool different bands with different with all the greatest people you know yeah. older and younger yeah uh people and so i i had just got to know him just around that time and brought him in to do um you know i think maybe he's on four four or five tracks and he did oh, cool great but it's a real it's a real cross-section of different people in the in the in this world right now right right yeah, yeah it's been interesting kind of seeing and I, I, at least in my realm, a resurgence of bluegrass and like a younger uh, yeah. audience, you know, amongst like the jam band scene and whatever. There's people yeah. like Billy and uh, Chris Teeley and uh, right. Green Sky Bluegrass, the String Dusters. There's all these bands that have been coming. I mean, I guess they've pro a lot of them have been around longer than than I'm aware. But uh, I've started yeah. seeing them a lot at like rock festivals because Soul Live was kind of that. We were like this jazz band that played the jam festivals and the rock festivals. Um, yeah. And it, now it's been really cool seeing these the bluegrass happen and people like Billy Strings that have this musicianship that's like really on a on another level. Yeah, well he's really a heavy cat and yeah. he really has his um, bluegrass cred. I mean he, yeah. especially his Doc Watson, you know, thing, but he does his own thing with it. So it's not like somebody who likes that stuff but that but they're really, you know, um, more into the dead or they're more into something else that, right. that they don't really have that background. He's got the background and he can do the other stuff. So he's, he's right. a pretty special character and he's got a lot of charisma. Yeah. yeah. As well. And uh, yeah, seeing his live show, it was like a rock show, but they were yeah. playing bluegrass. Like there was no doubt about it. He can play, you know, I guess I would say my perspective is that every few years, uh, a, a young, a young group comes along for a younger generation who can't relate to folks that, came from 15 years or 15 years older than them like right. if you think of nirvana or whoever when they came along it was like rock and roll starting all over again for a whole new group of people but right. it had to be people that looked like them and so like we had newgrass revival um but there was a point when oh you know the colorado when yonder came along yeah 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 you know and um and they reached a whole audience we didn't reach because simply because of their age yeah 
you know, and they were doing it in in a way that suited them, that spoke to people of their age. Yeah. And then, you know, Thiele, they came along, but I, periodically, and now we've got, you know, um, Billy coming in strong with that that kind of thing. Here's here's a version of it for you that reflects today, right? And your age group. So it's it, which brings new people to the music. It's fantastic. Right, right, and it's interesting sometimes to see how some of these audiences start to realize like, oh, these are like traditional songs and that the Grateful Dead ended up playing and other people have played in, in other types of genres and kind of understanding where the roots of that music actually comes yeah, from. Yeah, that's a cool thing. That is a cool thing. And there's a lot of love for, for um, the sense of tradition and groundedness. Yeah. Out there. People want wanna they want that. They want a connection to that. And bluegrass right. is a great way to get to get some of that. Well I have to say that listening to your music as a ch- as uh, a kid i mean you know I, I i'm not that much younger than you but younger and like you know when i was probably 18 i discovered the flectones mm-hmm. and i wouldn't say i was really that aware of bluegrass i actually must have been younger i must have been like 16 but through the flectones cuz i was into funk and i was into jazz and and uh, through the flectones i found people like tony rice and then right. I, you know, strength in numbers was a massive deal for me. Um, and discovering Mark O'Connor, I, I actually learned the guitar solo from Slopes and it like changed <laughs> my plan. I remember that guitar solo, I was on repeat for a while and finally I had to like fix, I mean, there's no way I could pull it off now and I doubt it was great then, but uh, it was... Uh, it's language. It's you language, yeah. That he spoke on the guitar. Yeah. He was a pretty fu- fantastic guitar player, I have to say, because yeah. like Tony Rice was the cat. He could do the rhythm and this and this great way of playing that was unbelievable to play with. It made you play better to play with him. Yeah. Um, and and he and he can't. I, I was doing. I think it was my second record, and I was I was going to California to record with Tony and David Grisman, yeah. and they had split up the the, the Grisman quintet not too long ago. So it was really a coup that I got them to record together on yeah. my record. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. The night before Tony backs out, he says, "Hey man, I just can't, I can't I can't play with Grisman. I you know he can't you get another mandolin player or something oh, like yeah, that." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, "Ah, oh. so so last minute we got Mark to come in and play guitar, and yeah. he's the only guy well, for a long long time that could create that bed." For bluegrass, uh, that rhythmic guitar, the rhythm guitar thing, that was so magical and propulsive and uh, and supportive, which is interesting because you know you don't usually think of him as in, in that ensemble kind of thing of getting under a, a, a thing and making it happen from the inside. You usually you think of him as being the layer on top, but he yeah, plays yeah. so many things so well. Um, and his guitar playing is coming back now. He, he he let it go for many years, but he's he's doing it again. But it, it was a phenomenon. So uh, yeah. He's something else. Yeah, and his rhythmic pulse was just always. He's just such a, um, you know, I don't even know how to describe it. It's just like like he's like a drummer. It's just solid, you know. And but it's, and it's so tasteful. I think the best bluegrass guys are. They they yeah. have that internal pulse, and they they can really make something happen without leaning on anybody. But um, a good bluegrass band, everybody takes a part of that yeah. uh, responsibility. And you know, it's not just simply that the mandolin players player plays the chop and the bass plays the downbeats. Yeah, you know, and, you know, it's not it's not as simple as that because people are constantly changing roles in good bluegrass. Yeah, and when you listen to Flat and Scruggs, the banjo plays one way behind the fiddle. It plays another way behind the vocals. You know, the banjo can play a different way behind the mandolin. And, and, and because in the early bluegrass, um, often it was on one mic or very few mics. Yeah. So whoever was the soloist 
stepped up. They were loud, like on an old Charlie Parker live record, or you know, where you really hear the saxophone super loud, louder than we would consider to be a good mix. But what happened is the leader would drag the band into their sense of rhythm. Yeah. So when you when the mandolin came up up to the mic and start playing everyone had to follow him because he was loud he was the loudest guy yeah. when the fiddle came up his groove would come up they were all different everybody so in one song you'd have like five maybe six different rhythmic concepts that would happen and would flow the verses would be, have one concept where everyone's playing behind the vocalist maybe one verse the mandolin would be doing backup so the banjo would chop or the fiddle would chop then the solo would come the fiddle would lead if he had a really straight eighty kind of thing. Then everybody would have to play more straight eighty. Right, right. Uh, the banjo player came up. If he, if he had a ro- uh, bounce into his role, everybody would have to bounce. You had, have to figure out how to make it work for every single thing, and it happened seamlessly. So what happens in a bluegrass band is kind of a, a minor miracle. It all happens very quickly. There's a lot of depth and a lot of variety in one bluegrass song when it's done right, in my opinion. And playing with different guys um, over the years, I'm sure you've just absorbed pieces, you know, as you've as you've uh, moved through your evolution. Everybody affects how you play in bluegrass. You, you're not on your own. Uh, just like a good drummer affects everyone around them. But in blue, you can't ju- like in some kinds of music. You can I'll just go with the drummer, and you mm-hmm. can be fine. But, but um, in bluegrass, you're very impacted by everyone's rhythm. Uh, every yeah. single person in the group. Yeah. So as a New York City native, how did you stumble on the banjo as an instrument and bluegrass as, as a, you know, a tradition? Yeah, well, when I first heard it, it was the banjo in particular and bluegrass not, not, in, not in particular. It was just okay. the sound of that banjo. And it was Earl Scruggs on the Beverly Hillbillies TV show. Okay. <laughs> and that banjo playing is still profound banjo playing. It's yeah. just, just awesome. It's turned a lot of people... Um, into banjo players that, that his playing has that way of doing it like I, don't, I know there's guitar players that are th- this way for you that they hear here's B.B. King or they hear whoever uh, Hendrix or something and then from then on they have to play guitars no question yeah. Earl Scruggs is that kind of guy I mean yeah. I'd say more so than someone like me he's turned thousands and thousands of thousands of people into banjo players something compelling about his playing but um, so anyway I heard that and I had that same thing happen to me that happened to you know almost every professional banjo player I, I've known for the, you know, till the newest ones. Now, lately we have people that grew up on me or Gnome or Tony Trishka mm-hmm. and, and they, they suffer for that. They're, they're not as good <laughs> because they, they're not, they don't have as much Earl Scruggs and J.D. Crow mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. them. And I mean, I, I'm, it's just the truth. I mean, there's just something about the people that grew up where that was what they started with that is very compelling. Um, and sometimes people uh, can be a little bit vague or squirrely in their playing in that it doesn't it doesn't have that solidity or make this kind of sense that is expected from someone from the earlier eras. Right. But that's the way it goes. You know, that's the way it goes. And gradually these things will fall away. Right. And what what when a person is the exception, like a Chris Thiele, for instance, or a Mark O'Connor, and everyone starts to play like them and then they let go of all these other parts of mandolin playing and fiddle playing that other people did that were really special, right. special parts of the ensemble. But maybe these guys are such fantastic soloists. Everybody wants to copy them. Right. But as incredible as, as as Thiele is, he would never say that he can do what Sam Bush does with the, with the rhythm of a group, the way he can control the rhythm of a band. Right. Um, that Sam is the god of that, you know. Absolutely. And uh, and Mark, you know, there's things about ensemble playing that are you know might not be as Mark's thing as much. Uh, I think of him more as a soloist, and even when he plays backup, it's solo oriented. It's, it's yeah. not. To make the whole, he's not. Where Michael Cleveland is the opposite. Like, yeah, he plays great solos, 
Uh, but he's always thinking about what his fiddle impact will be on the group, how right. he can make the group sound better. And sometimes you don't even notice he's doing it. Yeah. So there's all these different skills. Yeah. And everybody, you know, everybody finds different areas that they excel in and, and contribute in. Right, right. So as you were learning the instrument and started um, playing with with um, other musicians, obviously, was it was it hard in New York City to find people to play with? Or were you just like, okay, banjo is the instrument, I'm going to play it with whoever and whatever style well there was the uh the folk scare as they call it that came just a little bit before i came on the scene um the folk boom uh and and it was uh enhanced by the deliverance movie in terms of its banjo um impact uh just as the folks boom was sort of dying out deliverance came along and there was this whole banjo boom yeah you know so um there was lots of people when i was a kid in new york that played um folk music and and there was like the hey brother coffee house i used to go up to and i could take my banjo and sit in the back and play forward row you know just play in the background along with people and eventually right. get on stage oh that's cool yeah. like the little coffee houses and there were some really good players around um and in fact tony trishka who ended up being my teacher is the most avant-garde modern wonderful banjo player that's ever come along i was able to get lessons with him you know yeah. that was like going right to the top he was my third banjo teacher and i had really good teachers before that too yeah. So I was pretty lucky. But in terms of being normal, I wasn't normal. I mean, I wasn't going to festivals and hanging out with other people like me. I was in New York City going to music and art high school uh, with, you know, people like Marcus Miller and, and, and Omar Hakim and all of these great jazz people. And I was going to listen to that music, too. Yeah. And it was it was making me think differently about what the banjo could do. We had a jazz appreciation class in school one day, and they played Chick Corea's Spain, okay. which is a great track. And I, that and that was the first one where it clicked in my head. I was like, wow. I mean, there's jazz that I don't see how the banjo could fit in. But this, I really do, because the way he played that keyboard, the, those that electric roads or whatever it was, um, and that, that crunchy sound, and then that forward lean, that rhythmic push that he always had in his playing. I was like, well, I can see that. The banjo could maybe do that. So, And then I went to see him and Return to Forever at the Beacon Theater um, uh, wow. when I was uh, a senior in high school. And that was that just changed everything. I was like, oh, I got to learn how to do this stuff. I love how, you know, every musician that I've ever spoken to kind of has like a concert or a moment, like, you know, or, or actually it's really a series of them right. that change their path, you know. You know, for right. me, I saw, um, I mean, there was various different shows, but I saw Herbie Hancock as a kid that completely blew my mind wide open. Um, right. But, uh, you know, it's interesting how seeing Return to Forever, it makes sense. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think you're right. It's, you have those those moments where, uh, uh, and I think it, it doesn't have to be, it could have been anybody. Like if it hadn't been Earl Scruggs and maybe I saw somebody else or saw J.D. Crow play, it could have yeah. been that, been the first time I heard banjo playing at that level. Or, or if instead of hearing Return to Forever, I saw... Mahavishnu Orchestra, then that would have been the first time I ever heard anything like that. And it can have, you know, when you're young and you've never heard anything like that, it's like, wow. Yeah. No idea. Music could be this, like this, you know, right. and right. You, you get very passionate about it. And, and that's why I say it goes back to that age. There's a particularly impressionable age for a musician to be when it hits them, you know, right. like when they hear something so staggering that they, they just want to do that so bad. Yeah. And I remember staying up all night after the Return to Forever show. And, um, and and trying to figure out, I was I was watching Stanley Clark yeah. all over that phase, yeah. and then Al Demille all, yeah. all over that guitar. <laughs> I was like, all those notes are on the banjo somewhere, right? And Chick Corea, who I liked the best, didn't really play that way. He was more uh, 
Uh, he didn't just play a whole lot of 16s as much. He did a lot of different, had a lot of variety in his playing. I liked his playing the best of all of them, but the right. other guys showed me what was possible on an instrument with frets. And there was no reason that I shouldn't be able to do that because all those notes had to be on the banjo somewhere. And so I actually went home and started working on scales and modes and mapping them out and writing them out on, on, on tablature paper and trying to figure out how could I do these, how can I get to know my banjo the way those guys know their instruments. We'll be right back after a quick message from our sponsors. A lot of the voicings and the scales and and chords that you're incorporating into your playing, you know, of course... um, the three finger style, a lot of the st- stylistically and technically, a lot of that came from, you know, from the past. But you're at you added so many different flavors and continue to and have collaborated with so many people and brought the banjo into so many genres. Was there a lot of work before you getting into that as far as like mapping out how these chords and how these these new scales would work into that technique? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think it even goes back to that first, that, that night of, of Return to Forever when I yeah. realized I've got to learn to play, uh, I've got to know every position, not just the main, in the, not just the chord positions, but every place in between. I have to know yeah. them all. And so it was a matter of mapping things out and then learning the scales, the thirds, the fourths, the fifths, the sixths, the sevenths, the octaves, yeah. and then learning what the chords were. I had to learn how to read just even a fake book. I mean, I couldn't read the notes very well. It was always slow, but I could figure out the chords. And then little yeah. by little, it became clear to me what the inversions of the chords had to be. And I didn't have to play all the notes that I could grab three of them. And, and I was actually better because then I wasn't spelling out the whole chord. Um, so all of those kinds of things, um, just very slow and painstaking. Like if someone learned it now and I told them how to do it, they would spend, you know, an eighth of the time that it took me. Right. right. Um, but that's the way it is when someone, and it's hard to believe nobody had done that, but, and they had done that in certain styles on the banjo. Like there was, um, the, the, what we call the melodic style, which is a rolling way of playing scales where you uh, alternate notes, almost like on a classical guitar, you go to a lower string for the higher note and you can, you can play a scale that ripples and sounds like has the role of the banjo in it. Um, but what I was trying to do, and I, and I thought would set me free from being stuck in the open keys, was was doing it all closed as if I was playing a guitar, playing the scales on the guitar and learning, you know, going up one note of each inversion, right. not inversion, uh, one note of, of each mode and learning the scale positions every step of the mode up neck, rather than doing it here, moving up to the next position, learning them all in between right, every, right. from every from every note. It wasn't as hard, really, even on the banjo because there's only four strings, and I only could do, you know, about uh, ten notes before I ran out of fing- you know, before I ran out of right. fingers. So, right. but at any rate, no one had really done that. Um, they had explored this technique. So, I, instead of using a flat pick like you do yeah. a lot of the time, I'm sure I was doing my downstrokes with my thumb and my upstrokes with my index, which right. is called the Reno style or the single string style. And it's actually pretty tricky to do that and not make a clicking sound with right. a metal pick, and and also to keep the rhythm kind of fluid sometimes like i have an easier time with a pick than doing the the finger uh, yeah 
thing. Well, it, it's yeah, it's not the most natural thing on the in the world, but you know, you would do it on a piano, right? You, right. Know, you would get the rhythm with whatever finger, and you. So it's really almost more like that. You have to have the strength of whatever finger is is next, yep. uh, and yep. it can't always be a downstroke with the thumb and an upstroke with the index. But then I found a technique that got me, you know, got me going and taught me the instrument. And then I realized I could use that technique to to understand the instrument, but I could apply the rolls back to it. Yeah. that I had gotten rid of to learn the instrument, you know, right. to, to learn my way down the instrument so I could play in any key and play the scales and the chords. But then I was then I found it much more interesting when I could find an open string to use and, and a ringing sound rather than having a, you know, playing it like a guitar but with fingers uh, instead of a pick. So, um, but it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a messy style, you know, things, everything doesn't work and there's things I can't get to and things that, I can't understand because I didn't learn on a piano or, or even a guitar with more, you know, um, more range. Right. You right. could play certain notes and have other chords on top of it. I only got four, basically four strings. My fifth string is a repeat of the first string. Yeah. yeah. And there's a lot I can do, but there's a lot I can't do and a lot that my brain doesn't understand because I didn't learn the piano. Right. So I think that's for somebody, somebody else to do. Cause I, <laughs> I, I think I've, I've taken as far as I can and I'm, I hope I'm not done, but, um, but there's more to go. Well, it seems like every time, you know, that I, every time I look on Spotify or pay attention to anything, you have a new project and are collaborating with so many people. Um, if, uh, if you could look back, did you see, um, that like when you were putting together these techniques and developing your, your skill set, were you also con- kind of conceptualizing, I'm going to take the banjo and bring it into all these different genres was that a thought in your mind well yeah i kind of thought i want, i just wanted it to be taken seriously and i didn't like yeah. it when people laughed at it right and there right. was a lot of laughing at it when i was a kid and it really bugged me so um because i was just a serious character you know for what i still am i guess but i mean i have a sense of humor but i you know have people have a you know certain um um, tendencies, you know, some people are very funny. Some people are like super serious. Some people are, you know, super thoughtful. And I was always really serious. And I, th- I was the banjo was my, you know, extension of who I was. So I was, um, I just wanted to do it as good as I could do it. I wanted to be the best I could be. Yeah. I wanted to uh, master every aspect of the instrument. And um, and so, and I was just curious. And I want. And people would say, why don't you just learn to play? you know, guitar, if you're going to be playing, um, jazzy stuff or, or classical stuff, why don't you just learn, a, you know, another instrument? I was like, cause the banjo is my instrument. That's the instrument that that's my expression as a person. And that's what I'm interested in. It's much more interesting to me to hear those licks on the banjo, right. like a Bach thing or a, or a West Montgomery thing. All of a sudden it's new again. And it, and it, it, um, it feeds everything else I do. So, right. so it was more that, um, I was curious and I wanted to be, um, you know, I wanted to be on the front edge like a Chick Corea was or John McLaughlin was or those people that were the great bluegrass people that I was such like a Mark O'Connor or Tony Rice or Sam Bush. These guys were all innovating on their instruments. And that seemed like what you're supposed to do if you grew up in the 60s. Even the Beatles, you know, from when they started to where they ended, they just changed so much. So I thought you're just supposed to cut some new ground. So that was but I didn't really know quite what how it was going to apply itself. I knew I wanted to have a band someday. Um, that did, you know, and I, that that I could do my music in that I was writing in, and I um, and I tried, and I, it hadn't worked out. It didn't work out for quite a while, uh, till so I would be in in a band. I was always in a band, right? Um, like a bluegrass band. I usually a pretty modern bluegrass band. Usually, I was always in one, 
Um, and then on the side, I'd be to do my solo projects. But, uh, but when I met Victor and Future Man and Howard, all of a sudden, uh, I realized I was at a turning point, you know, where I could actually do this because they were strong enough to make this thing. It wouldn't just be about me. They were strong enough for this to be about a band sound and a whole, a whole group of people that were trying to do something new with their instruments. Um, and I, it was just, I just don't think I was good enough or, um, uh, compelled enough to have it be like Bela Fleck with a backup band. I just didn't really, I didn't think I was good enough to, to carry the night instrumentally with, without people that were my equals or betters right, right. In, in a band. And I like being in a band with people that are better than me at things and, you know, way better. Yeah. And cause then I have to, ha- I have to push myself to, to get up there. And over the years I get better, you know, when you met Victor, cause it, um, you were, you were in the new grass revival at that point, right? Yeah, because mm-hmm. you left New York, you went to Boston, which is also not where I would uh, guess that a bluegrass musician, or or I shouldn't say bluegrass, or a banjo player would go. Well, um, nowadays it's a great place to go, like because of because right. of the Ber- Berkeley. Berkeley right. Back then they wouldn't take me, you know, they wouldn't take a banjo player back then. So I couldn't, I couldn't go learn the stuff. Yeah. And if I had, you know, I would be a lot better at jazz, I'm sure, because I would have had some great jazz players teaching me you know, on a regular basis. And I would have gotten my reading together and I would have had access to a lot of different things. But I did take jazz studies with private teachers when I was in Boston and I got my real book and, uh, and I, and I went through the tunes and learned the chords and, and some of the melodies and, and it, I did a lot of, I made a lot of progress in Boston cause I could go hear jazz all the time in the clubs. Right. Right. But meanwhile, I was on tour with the bluegrass band. Okay. And then I was on the street playing on the street for a, a summer uh, when I, when everything fell apart. Like Harvard square. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to go there and see all the cats playing there. Yeah, um, I loved it. It was really fun, actually. It was. I loved I loved hanging out over there. I heard so many great musicians over there. But I uh, discovered there that you didn't actually have to, like, dance around or sing to get someone's attention, that there was uh, there was something compelling about watching somebody who was really into what they were doing. Yeah. Like, it wasn't doing any any showboating, and cause I, which was good for me to find out because I, I never was good at any of that stuff. Uh, you know, um, although the, you guys did have some great uh, kind of stage tricks with the fleck tones, where you and Victor would do the. the oh yeah, well I have fun, but I mean I, I still don't. I think that was just in, in context with guys that like Victor and Future Man. They worked at Bush Gardens in Virginia. They worked at a theme park, and they were oh. in like an Oompa band, and they were in you know all kinds of bands uh, throughout that the years. That makes sense. Now that I think about that, because Victor is it, such a showman. Yeah. And so they they not only were they comfortable, like normally if you've got somebody with the kind of ability that those guys have, um, they're not interested in um, doing the same thing over and over again. But those guys were totally okay with that because they, you know, you would do a 40 minute show, take a, you know, take an hour and come back and do the same 40 minute show all day, all summer. Right. And we'd really refine it and get good at it. So they actually had the the, uh, patience and um, desire to um, to play, you know, to really get good at the music, yeah. like to play it again and again, where Howard kind of drove him crazy because he wanted to play new music all the time. But we were still getting it together, you know, yeah. and, um, and we were going out and playing at night after night for different people. And, and we were improvising a lot, too. But yeah. they were also OK with a certain amount of shtick. Yeah. Yeah. Know, which, uh, which helped when you're when you're all instrumental and you've got, you know, you, got, you don't have some super um, uh yeah, a front man that's yeah. just you know gets everyone's attention like Kenny G or somebody. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's a team effort. You figure, well, what can we do to turn on this crowd? And we know that Victor's going to sling the bass around his neck at the end and do some acrobatics, and we're going to win in the end. Right, right. No matter, well, no matter what we do, we're going to win. It doesn't matter what music we play, but what can we do along the way 
that makes it really fun for people to watch. And, and back then we didn't have a light man and we couldn't afford one. So we learned to like light ourselves, like to light, uh, to stage every song. So if, if you, we, if Victor was playing, we would always find a place to surround him and watch him do his solo with a whole band. So if, if we're all looking, the audience would look yeah. when it was my turn, I would sometimes, you know, some songs I would go to the front of the stage. They would surround me from behind. Yeah. If Howard was playing, we'd all walk over there. We were involved. It wasn't just, okay, you do your solo. I'll just stand here. Everybody, uh, every song had a certain, um, uh, choreography, even though it, they weren't planned. Yeah. They were very rarely planned. It would be something that happened one night that was too good to not do again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we'd do it again and again, you know. Well, what was so interesting about the band also, I mean, not beyond the fact that you guys were blending so many genres, you guys were using a drum guitar, drum machine, but also none of you guys were stuck to a station. You guys all could move. Right. So that was, you guys had this room to move around the stage and, and, well, that's uh, that's a really exciting thing. When ear monitors came out, we were, we, we adopted them in the first or second year yeah. for exactly that reason. And we, we begged Warner brothers to buy us a set of ear monitors, which right. were quite expensive that first year. Yeah. Yeah. We were like maybe $7,500 per, per set. Yeah. And Warner's, Warner's was uh, so into the band at that time. We really, we had a great relationship with the, the guy who ran the, our part of the label. And, you know, he bought me the first, my first Pro Tools rig. You know, we, we paid it all back over the, you know, through the royalties and they made their money back, but they would give us a hand. They would do things for us like that. So yeah. I was like, man, and we went to that, that NAM show and we came back and said, if we can all get these headphones, man, we can, we could do the whole show in the audience. That was yeah, my yeah, dream. Yeah. You know, have states have set setups all over a theater, and but you know that was a little crazy. But we would start the night in the audience and work out and come on stage. Yep. We had a great beginning, and then then somewhere in the night we would end up in the audience, all of us, you right. know, just uh, and so that was a really fun thing. I got to see you guys a lot in that era. My brother also is a banjo player. You've met my brother, I think, at yeah. some point. Who and also he, he he also uh, studied with Tony Trishka. For yeah. a little while. And so he was a driving force musically for me. He's like five and a half years older. So a lot of the records and he would bring me to shows. Um, but fast forward later, Soul Live opened for you guys a few times. In New Orleans. I, I in New one. Orleans at the Sanger yeah. Theater. And I believe da- out in um, Long Island was the first time. Yeah. Out in Long Island at some like botanical garden thing. But oh. I, I And I was such a huge fan. And I remember setting up before you guys and realizing how little gear you actually had on stage. I mean, you had, or you was, it was this wide open space. Meanwhile, we were like, you know, drum kit, big ass B3 organ. We had to kind of stay in place. Right. Uh, and so it was really cool to kind of see, we were inspired by your guys' showmanship too, because like we were just there kind of playing our songs, you know, and we would get into it and everything and we had our suits, but, uh, it was great. You guys grooved like crazy. I mean, you didn't have to do what we were doing. It worked. You know, it was a whole different vibe and it worked in its own special way. You know, well, I appreciate I you it. saying that. I mean, it's we learned so much, though, playing with bands like you guys. And I remember I think that same summer we opened for Bonnie Raitt. And I remember mm-hmm. like sweating so hard and we're playing our butts off and we're trying to like win over her fans. And she comes on like 
barely moving a muscle and like a statue and just slays them with like two notes. So everyone's right. got their their thing right. and, and it's always nice to like learn and absorb uh, from the greats, you know, so that was a it's cool. It's important not to try to be too hard to be somebody else or what you think, you know, it, it almost true. always works better if you can find that thing about yourself that's unique and make that be the center of what you offer because sure. that's the most honest thing and, and honesty really does sell. I mean, and, yeah. and, and when I mean sell, I don't mean necessarily in terms of making money, but in terms of communication, yeah. you, you can tell if somebody's jive, you know, within 30 seconds. Yeah, that's you true. Know, you can tell it on recordings, too. And, and if somebody's coming from an honest place, you you have a different reaction. Well, I've been going through your discography for the last couple of days, which is quite a task um, and uh, so much output and, and I'm wondering like as a as a kid were you like the overachiever and like just always uh uh busy kind of um going after these these concepts and these um projects uh no no I don't I think it was pretty average until I got the banjo and then that sort of lit a fire under me and once I, I got the banjo that, yeah. I was an overachiever right at that point I was very all of a sudden uh, instead of being very undisciplined, I was very disciplined, and I just poured, you know, phenomenal amounts of energy into learning it and and uh, and and wanting to really get every single thing totally down. Yeah, uh, wanting to be perfect, wanting to be the best I could be, and then at a point I realized I was really, you know, pretty good, pretty fast. Right. Um, like my teacher Tony Trishka, who still is one of the great banjo players that's ever played. Um, when I was a teen, when I was uh, in the uh, last year of high school, there was a party at my house. That he came to and and uh, some of his friends came and they said, you know, you, you and Tony were jamming. I couldn't tell which one was you and which one was Tony. Right. And I'd only been playing for two, you know, two and a half years or something. And I could pretty much play like Tony Trishka, who was the greatest player at the time in a modern way. And and it, it took a while to dawn on me that there already was a Tony Trishka and I needed to stop right. playing like right. it. Uh, it was a very tough, tough thing to give up because I love I still love his playing so much. It's a great, great way of playing. Yeah, yeah. But, but I did realize that I was I was moving fast and I was making good progress. And technically, I knew that I could do pretty much anything anybody could do after just a couple of years. And right, that, right. that's that's pretty darn fast. Yeah. Um, I have to say not with the ego, but just it was just fast. So, so um, I think I was pretty cocky there in the beginning. I well, it's less- also when you find the thing. I mean, I kind of have the same thing. I, I was I wasn't really like a super motivated kid, and then when I found music, it was just like get a, all all I could do, all I could think about. Um, and in your case, uh, you know, obviously, it's inspired you just beyond. And uh, one of the things that that is really that I really admire is that not only have you taken the instrument forward but you've also traced the roots a bit and um i watched the throw down your heart documentary for probably the second or third time this week and uh had there was so many moments in there that were really um you know eye-opening for me i we soul live actually traveled to ghana about 20 years ago and got to play with some amazing people. It was a, not quite to the depths of, of what you did, but you know, got to travel around and meet uh, some amazing musicians and and work everywhere. With, it was everywhere. everywhere we went. I mean, that was the thing is we would go to the beach, um, not even in search of a jam session, and we would run into these musicians because it would get around that we were this American band, and mm-hmm. everyone would bring their instruments out and start playing, and it's. It's an interesting 
It's hard to explain if you haven't been there, but it feels like music just is life there in a different way. What and I've seen it, 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 it was the same way that when we played shows, it was not really like a show. We were we were just part of something, you know. Right. That's why a lot in a lot of African cultures, dancing, singing is the same word, and a lot of the the people are just part of it as an experience. It's like a conversation. Yeah. Um, so anyway, it was really cool watching that and watching you kind of trace the banjo back. Obviously, like the Akanti is like a very similar instrument. And I've, I've seen it called a Kologo and I've seen all these different instruments. But also the way that you played with those artists um, in such a free way, but it also kind of like created these compositions. So I was just curious Leading up to that, what kind of like preparation did you do? Uh, did you did you work on that in terms of technique and your playing and how you're going to incorporate your playing into these situations, or yeah. was it more just listening to the music? Well, it was a combination of preparation and no preparation. Right. So there were people that I was I was on the lookout for, like Umo Sangari, for instance. I already knew. I loved her music and we'd already picked out some songs that, I, that she was fine with doing and I could just learn them and sort of work on, play along with the records and make sure I knew the lines and sort of look for a place to play. Um, and then there were things where um, I met somebody and we recorded right then and there and there was no, nothing I could do except yeah. play freely like a jazz musician, just be responsive right. and not try to... And uh, I remember one of the early days when I was in uh, Nakaseni, um, Uganda, and I, I had this satellite phone that was like, this big, you know, but I had it with me, <laughs> yeah. and I called Abby from the, you know, from this river there by the Nile somewhere, and uh, I said, Abby, I don't know what to do. I can't figure out where the downbeat is on this marimba music. It's just so, I, there's no way I haven't, I haven't got the time to learn it. And now we're going to be yeah. filming it tomorrow. And she said, you don't have to know where the downbeat is. She, she gave me the freedom. She said, you just play, be yourself, and play, play something that feels good to you. And that's, and then I realized it was impossible for me to be prepared to play with a new person every day for 30 days in a row yeah. and know their music intimately from another culture. I could have spent 30 years in one of those towns trying to learn that music. So, um, so again, there were places where, okay, I would go meet the person. I would, uh, we would choose a song we were going to do. I would go to my hotel or my campsite with it and I'd work on an arrangement to tab it out and figure out, okay, this is how I'm going to do this and really come up with a refined um, way of playing. And then there were times where not just gotta just go just play yeah so i think that that the record and the movie actually benefit from that because um um is there's variety yeah from really improvised uh over the top of what they did to really understanding pretty pretty well what's going on and finding a role within it or copying someone else's role but um yeah so that that's that's how i saw i saw it yeah well i i was uh Really, really, I really enjoyed that that film, but also going back to it after having had that trip was really cool. So I, I, I've seen it a I, lot. Uh, <laughs> I've seen that movie because yeah. we used to bring it to all these film festivals, and and the way we would get an audience to show up is at that time I had a pretty significant pile of people that would show up yeah. if I was there. Right. So you know, it was a pretty good deal because you know you pay five ten bucks to go to a movie. Uh, you know, at a film festival, and and uh, and you get a, a concert and a discussion as well. At the end of it, I would play, and I did it. I don't know, thirty, forty, fifty times, um, and um, uh, yeah, it was it was a whole different experience. Yeah. And did you go back after? Um, no, I came out. 
And and I didn't go back partly because I had children. It was one of the yeah. things where I wouldn't go. Like a lot of the places I went has had uh, like you know what's happened in Mali, right? You know, uh, um, and um, and Uganda and and uh, and the Gambia. All three of those places had fi- you know fighting going on within. Yeah. A hundred miles of where I was on my trip, so I felt like I got in and I got out. Yeah, and maybe that was okay, you know. And I don't need to be tempting fate like that now. And I thought my, my next project I was thinking about, but then I had kids, was to do something with um, musicians from uh, Iraq and and Iran, right. because I felt like that was another bridge building kind of a thing. And in fact, when I talked to Pete Seeger about the banjo, he said, "Oh no, it doesn't come from Africa. It actually comes from Mesopotamia." down the Tigris-Euphrates River through the trade routes into Africa. But it actually starts where humanity started. And I said, are you telling me that America's instrument comes from Iraq? At that time, we were at war with Iraq. Right. He said, yeah, that's what I'm telling you. So I thought that would be a really neat thing to do. Yeah. But, but now, you know, that, but then, you know, just it, was, it just wasn't really going to make sense to do that and too risky. Right. Have, but you've done some collaborations. Like I know Tumani Diabate, you guys have done stuff. Was that kind of him coming over here or remote sessions? It wasn't in Africa when I was there. Right. Uh, Cause I love what you guys have done together. It's oh, thank you. beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so, so he was kind of a little bummed out that, uh, that, I, that he missed the boat. He got back to, uh, to, 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 um, Bamako the day I was leaving from the end of my trip. And then I ran into him at a folk festival and we played together and he said, Hey man, I wish I could have been on that project. And yeah. I said, well, you know, I said, it's going to be another year before it's done. And you want to play on a few tracks? Right. And he said, sure. You know, so we played on a few tracks. And then I thought, well, he's on the record. And I asked him if he wanted to do some touring. And then we did quite a few duo concerts. And it turned right. into a whole other thing, which we have now released, um, the duo concerts, which right. is a rippling a rippling uh, thing, you know, where we're both playing 16th notes. and But we just sort of feather into each other and settle yeah. in. And it's a very... He's an incredible accompanist on it's and, and the he's playing the Cora for people that don't know Timani. Yeah, he's like yeah. the greatest Cora player, or at least the most beloved, one of the top top instrumentalists of Africa, uh, most well known. And so it was a real treat to play with him. He's amazing. Um, yeah, I was supposed to travel to Mali years ago too because I produced Via Farcature's album. Oh, neat! And we were <laughs> collaborating with all these different people, um, but I, I I didn't get to go because of all the craziness. Um, he's very close with Tumani, if I remember yeah, correctly. Yeah, that's, that's why I brought it up. Yeah. Uncle or godson or something. Right, right. They have some sort of relation. Once in a while, we would see him. He would show oh, up. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I had a similar experience on some of the tracks, because I would sometimes play on some of the tracks. We had a great players. We had Derek Trucks, and Dave Matthews was on the record, and a lot of great artists were on there. John Schofield, which was a really cool combination. But yeah. uh I had a similar thing where finding like finding that one and I had to let go of it eventually and say, okay, I can just feel, uh, try to just fit in where I, where I fit in and not necessarily try to get my head around where the one is, but uh, they're not worried about it. They're not worried about it. They're not even thinking about it. When I asked the, the, uh, he laughed at me, you know? Yeah, which is, I, I have that experience a lot of times and yeah. had people describe the one as being in various places. And I realized yeah. that for, in some of those villages where one family always plays this part of the groove and this family across the across the way plays that part of the groove when the whole town is playing together right for them that's one their part right. is one but it interlocks they know how it interlocks it doesn't matter so i mean it does matter i would love to know you know some of that music is so twisted that um tanzanian music too where everything's on the end right um and it's uh, really but um 
you know, a lot of Latin music is like that too. Yeah. Whereas yeah. it's on the hand and you, you, you can learn it, you know, just, you got to take your time. Right, right. But I didn't have that kind of time. So in recent years, um, we touched on this earlier, but uh, you and your wife have been creating records together, touring together. And uh, for people out there that don't know, um, check out the Bela Fleck, Abigail Washburn records. You guys have a self-titled album from 2014 and then Echo in the Valley um, that came out in 2017, right? Yeah. Uh, I, it's just really interesting to me because the the whole concept of the the music on these records is it's just banjo right although there's some is there some there's some bass somewhere there was no bass so what what was was a bass banjo oh that was a bass banjo 1906 i was trying to figure that out okay sounds like a bass (laughs) right because some of the low end it would only come in at certain times and i'd be like oh i hear low end in there but i'm trying to figure that out if it was on echo in the valley on one song and it was a little awkward like when you use it because once you use it you're going to miss it but if you never use it you never miss it but then we also have the cello banjo which is you know quite a bit lower than a banjo yeah um um, so when you play that and you and you don't have an actual bass and you play I know this low yeah the broken string but yeah. oh yeah you know and you and you, you you record it well and give it some bottom it sound it functions as a bass right uh, to our banjos but then on another song we actually use the bass banjo and you had produced one of Abigail's records is that how you guys kind of linked up initially um we met up um, yeah, it's been 20 years or more now. Um, she was, uh, she was the example of the woman I wished I would find, you know, right. that she was proof to me that there was somebody out there for me, but I didn't think it would be her cause she was in a relationship Yeah, and she was also a good bit younger than me. I didn't, I wasn't looking for that, right. but, um, at a certain point. And, and so I, I, I ran with a, a crowd of people and she was part of that scene and, and her boyfriend was a musician and there was a bunch of younger players like Casey Dreesen is one of them. I think, you know, yep. Casey, yep. little player. And, um, and so I was hanging out with all those folks with a girlfriend I was with at that time. And, but, and every time I would uh, be around Abby, I would go, gosh, man, she speaks Chinese. She's a great singer. She, she's intriguing, you know? Yeah. But again, I just really thought she was special. Yeah. Um, but I didn't, I didn't, again, I'd never imagined us being together. Um, but then it was the re it was part of the reason why I split up with whoever I was with at the time, because I realized this isn't like that. This isn't mm-hmm. the kind of person I feel that way about. So I should let, we sh- I should cut it off because it's not, it's not going to be, I know it's not going to work. And, and, um, and a while later, a few months later, all of a sudden she coincidentally split up with her partner, uh, who she'd been with for eight years, yeah. like all the way through college. And, um, so and I found myself compelled. I mean, I just couldn't couldn't help myself. I, I just was I've never been an aggressive um, person in terms of, you know, um, trying to date somebody. I've always been scared of women. But for some yeah. reason uh, and, you know, I've had been married before and I've had lots of relationships, but they sort of more came to me or they just sort of would happen. You know, it wasn't like I was like, I'm going to try to convince you this, you know, but with her, I was like. Hey, give it a try. And she said, but I have a feeling it's going to be a rebound. And I said, well, we'll make it a great rebound, you know? <laughs> and we found yeah. that we really um, lit each other up. We really, yeah. um, you know, uh, challenged each other in good ways and helped each other be better uh, in various ways. And, and it turned out to be great. So we got married and, and she really always wanted to have kids. So that was part of it. She said, you know, I really want to have kids. I was like, oh, if if you would want to be in relationship with me, I would have kids. Right. Because before I wasn't wasn't gonna wasn't wanting to do that. But that was part of the the ground rules up front. So, 
And it turned out to also be the greatest thing that yeah. ever happened in my life, too, in terms of balance and uh, joining the human race. Yeah. And uh, letting music not be the only thing. And I, I think there's something to be said, for, at least as a musician, for doing it on the later end. You know, of course, yeah. I have no option but to be optimistic about that. How old are you? I'm 44. Yeah. And so, you know, the thing is for me is like I just feel more settled. You know, it's like I don't feel anxious to get out on the road and be gone yeah. all the time and to be out all the time. Like I really enjoy being with them. Yeah. Um, it's also finding the right partner. You know, it took me a while to find the right person to have uh, a child with. And I'm glad that I waited for that to be the right, yeah. you know? Yeah, that's um, right. Without the right partner, having children doesn't make sense. But with yeah. the right partner, it does. It makes so, all the sense. Really glad. Really glad. And you yeah. guys also get to make music together. And, um, right. And we never intended that. So right, right. we got into the relationship and I was hanging out with her a bit. She'd be making a record and I'd be like, um, I'd be like, hey, can I come over and see what you guys are doing? You know, yeah. and she'd be like, yeah. And I said, I, I think you could I think you could edit those takes together. And, and you know, yeah. you wouldn't. And so Zeep say, oh, well, go ahead. You know, and she was at, luckily she wasn't the type of type type A person that I am. Yeah. And she wasn't like, what are you doing? Like, this is, we need to keep the walls separate. We need to be separate. She was like, oh, okay, well, see what you do. And she liked it. And she wasn't as worked up about it being the ultimate, but I was, and yeah. I didn't want her to, you know, go out there and not, not have it be the best it could be. And so I helped her kind of, um, you know, refine her understanding of the studio and things like that and then she was off and running so then she yeah. she has a better ear than me at this point but right. it took a little awareness building and but i'd been doing it for you know decades and she was it was she was just making her first records and so she didn't realize that she didn't have to um let some things um not you know let some things suck right <laughs> when you're first that. doing your first recordings you're like oh wow a song yeah and i'm singing it and i'm playing it and it sounds good and that's good enough you know you're happy and a lot of times it's great yeah and there's great things about that but as you go along you go boy i really sang that second verse good on take three what a bummer we use take four right yeah and so i just i'm a I, i'm a fan of the belief that records are a different experience than live and you, you do what you want to feel good about it yeah, and if you feel good about it a little rough, that's a great thing to, uh, to offer. And if you feel about good about it being more precise and more um, refined, then that's just like wine. There's rough rough wine or yeah. street food that's killer, and then there's super refined food that's killer. It's, it's all good. We'll be right back after a quick message from our sponsors. A tendency to really want to get stuff right in the studio it's that that type a part of me you know yeah. I have the two sides i have the, the guy that like likes to go improvise freely and let everything let the chips fall where they may and then i have the side that wants to like refine 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 move things microscopic amounts till it's just absolutely perfect and in some ways say lifeless but yeah. I, I feel that um the experience of working on it that way in the studio um means that when i go out and play the music a while later I am so much better at it than I would have been if I didn't go through that process of really thinking about what makes every section of that music work. Right. Every little nook and cranny of it, I've explored and figured out what to play. And then I don't have to play that, but then I know a way to make it work. And right. I would say Black Tones, there's projects we made in the studio where we, we worked really, really hard on something and it was way better than we could play it at the time. And then three months later, after listening to the record for a while, we could play it way better. Mm. That experience made us. So I think of recording often as a rehearsal. Yeah. 
that that um, people are not willing to rehearse that way. And when they do rehearse that way, with that they, a lot a lot because they're so busy playing and not listening back, they don't actually um, uh, improve the music by rehearsing a lot. You have to actually study it. Interesting, interesting. Because I listened to a lot of the Flectone stuff for the last couple of days, which was used to be like my everyday listening for me. It had been a little bit, a little while. And going back to it, I realized how intricate those songs yeah. are. And did some of that happen in the studio, or were, did you bring those songs like fairly fleshed out? Was it was it an interactive writing process with the band? In the early days, when we would learn the songs and everybody would come up with their parts, and we would um, and we would perform them for for a long time before we recorded right. them. We okay. So we would um, we would keep on refining. Then in the studio, you do another another level level of refining. But the recordings didn't take very long. I mean, we yeah. remember it being like a week or something. Um, but then late on later albums, um, sometimes you know once once. Um, People started uh, recording the shows and putting them out. We we didn't want to play the music live because then it was already out there, and we had the experience of people saying, "Oh man, the lot record's not as good as the first version they did of that before they, you know." Oh yeah. And it was like, ah oh, man, I don't even want to subject ourselves to that, and I don't want um, the songs to be uh, a disappointment next to someone ha having a live experience, which is a different experience. So we decided we would rehearse the songs at sound checks, but not play them until right. we recorded them right. and from that was a whole new thing and i think a shame for the music honestly because there was a but no but we the guys had that kind of um detail work and the, a lot of the detail work i would say was shared by everybody everybody would find the things that they anywhere i could avoid telling them what to play i would avoid it if there was a melody it had to be a melody it had to be just right that was one thing uh, and but in terms of even the chords i would play the song for victor and roy and um and let victor play whatever he thought it ought to be and then then I would say, you know what, that's really a B flat. Yeah. But only after he'd tried six dozen things and had had his own way with it for like several rehearsals. Yeah. Because um, I discovered that if I tell Victor what to play, what the chords are, I give him a chord chart. He's going to play those chords, and he will never have. It'll never be possible for him to play to hear anything but what I told him it is. Yeah. Because yeah. he'll play those first, and that's what it is. But if I don't tell him what it is, he might do something that blows my mind. And he did yeah. it over and over again. And then. I still could remember what I thought the chords were. It didn't go away. So I could get the best of both worlds. I could have him try anything and find, you know, off, like even like Sinister Minister was not supposed to be a funk tune, but that's what he heard. Interesting. It was supposed to be a Latin tune that I wrote it in Paraguay. Oh, crazy. And, and, um, and that and bass line is because is like iconic. I, I learned that also on bass. He and Future Man brought so many things to it. Howard, I was a little bit more controlling with because it was like the melody. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, for the chords, the voicings really had to understand. They really had to understand the, the banjo voicings for the piano voicings to be right. It wasn't just play whatever you want. It wasn't a jam. It was yeah. a highly sculpted. There was a lot of jamming in it, but it wasn't a jam. Right. It was a, a sculpted musical offering. So, but once we found you know the, the the guidelines of what all our parts were, then we could all improvise within them within them within the basic concept of what they were. And did the improvisations um, feed the compositions or feed the arrangements over time? Well, yeah, when we played live a lot, yeah. when we played music live before recording, all kinds of things would come into the songs um, from live playing, and then we would remember the best ones, and they would gradually, gradually would harden into something that was pretty 
you know, pretty set and you'd start to get tired of it. And that's when you knew it was time for new material because there wasn't a lot of juice left in that, that orange. So, but, um, but up until then, you know, you know, it could be two years you were having a blast playing that tune and new things were happening, but generally, like I said, it would start to solidify into something. But I want to tell you a funny story though, or I think it's funny about the Flectones because we kind of got the rap that our, our records were like too, like too produced or too perfect, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So said something to one of the guys or something, you know? And, and so I was like, okay, you want to do a more looser kind of thing? Okay, let's do it. So, um, uh, so, uh, we did, we, we, we did some takes of, of a tune. We did our new normal, you know, pile of takes. I don't know. We, we, normally we play a tune for an hour or two. That's, that's yeah. our take. Yeah. We would know the song real well. We play it for an hour or two, maybe get 10 or 15, maybe 15 or even 20 takes, uh, maybe some sections where we were having trouble getting something. We would do some sectionals, you know, that we could cut in at any rate. I would, and then I would cut it together and then everybody would come in and fix their, you know, fix whatever they didn't like on the master comp. Yeah. You know? So, um, so I, so I said, well, let me have my way with it and then come, then tell me what you think. So I put together a comp of the, of the, the takes, you know, I think this is really good. It's a little loose. It's kind of groovy. Victor came in. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. It's got the life. It's, and I said, now I need to fix this part, this part, this part, this. And we went through and fixed all of his, his stuff. <laughs> Future man came in. It's slowly coming back, isn't it? Future man came yeah. in and said, yeah, drums are rushing over there. Uh, that's not the sound I wanted to use on that section. Uh, blah blah blah. Uh, you know, uh, can, can we? You know, can we move those symbols? A little, you know, and pretty soon, yeah, okay, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. That's good. That's good. And and so pretty soon we had all done it. And what I just and, and it was just like it was before. But what I learned is that everybody has a lot more tolerance for somebody else's loosenesses and mistakes than they do for their own. If you could give everyone in the band the opportunity to uh, police their parts, they're gonna you're going to be pretty serious about it. They're going to, right. they're going to want it to be really right. You know? Right. So then I just say, okay, this is the album. The album is the template for the piece. It's the, it's the very perfected idea of what it is. And now we're going to take that and we're going to go be loose. Yeah. And the thing that makes me feel good about that whole, all the process of working hard on a record is anybody can hear what it sounds like live. I'm not yeah. trying to hide anything from anybody about what it really is. And, and hopefully there'll be things in the live that are going to be better than a record ever could be. But there'll be things in the record. Sometimes you go back and you go, oh, man, we, there's a lot of stuff we've forgotten about this arrangement, about how good we did it on the record. Yeah. And I like going back and being impressed by the record and not disappointed. Because the other thing I discovered in the jazz world is you have a lot of people, you say, oh, man, what an incredible record. I don't know, you know, great talking to the top jazz guys. What an awesome re- record. I love that. He, uh, or, or no, 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 that's not it. You say, oh, man, I hear you guys have a new record out. I can't wait to hear it. And they say, don't listen to the record, man. <laughs> you right. can hear how we're playing it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I never wanted people to say that about the Flectones records. I wanted them to go, that's it. And I, I didn't want the band to be like, don't listen to the record. Yeah. You know, or hear us live. I wanted them to say, go listen to the record. Yeah. And come hear us live. Well, you know it's interesting. I mean, and the records stand up. I was listening to it because, and even with, because doing a, a drum machine thing is, is a slippery slope, but right. it, it really, I, the, his ability to sound natural on that thing is unbelievable. I had, you know, going back to it now too, I was like, wow. And it doesn't sound like, you know, you listen to like eighties records with drum machines on it and you're like, oh man, that's going to stay right there in 85. Yeah. But, uh. Right. I, I, was he designing his own sounds on that thing? Were you? Did you have input on that? 
he figured out how he did all the drum sounds. I mean, every once in a while he would dial up sounds and give me options, but mostly yeah. he would just come up with it. And he did a lot of layering. Yeah. He had like three different drum machines that were in sync with each other, and he would yeah. do you know ten percent of this, the add one snare uh, and fifty right. percent of the, you know, whatever. And he had and he and uh, and it sounded it always sounded good to me. I mean, I always thought it was good. But the thing about it is, it had a live feel. It never sounded programmed. It always right. sounded like someone was playing, and that made a difference. Yeah, that is the big difference. But his sounds got a lot better as time went on. In the later yeah. albums, he's playing a lot of acoustic and electric simultaneously, like with one hand on the real cymbals and a right. sitting with a real kick yeah. while playing the synthax. And me as the producer, engineer person who's dealing with it afterwards, a lot of times I thought the live cymbal was was uh, digital or the, the the studios, you know, the, the digital cymbal was was live. I, I couldn't tell until I looked at the tracks what was what. Wow. So it was pretty, it's it's hopelessly interwoven. Nobody could possibly tell on yeah. the last several records what parts are being played and how. Um, even a drummer, I don't think, could tell. It's It's so woven it's a big mesh of all these sounds and it's pretty incredible had he been playing that for a while when you guys linked up was that his bag already yeah he yeah. had uh, his first one which was called uh, was actually a synthax it was uh, yeah. he'd gotten it from alan holdsworth who'd gotten rid of it uh it was made to be a synth a synth guitar that was supposed to track really well yeah. it was a bizarre instrument but he used it um to to to, pro, to play drums from and um yeah, that was it. And and uh, and he was ta- the first show I ever did with him. I invited him to be on a show. Um, it was uh, the Lonesome Pines special, and you can see this. You can hear the first songs we ever played together on. Yeah. It's on the television show, and we were going to do five songs. And um, they uh, he came to town early, and we practiced. And he I wasn't sure it was going to work. It sounded kind of crazy, but I heard he was a great drummer, so we were going to have yeah. drums as well, just in case it fell apart or didn't work or, or it didn't sound good. But he sounded great. And when we started playing, I loved it. So, so we did it. But the first rehearsal, when Howard came uh, to town to rehearse for this first show, um, all the power went out on my block and we couldn't practice. We couldn't hear the electric bass. We couldn't hear the drums. We, all we could hear was the banjo, the harmonica. He, he was playing, you know, playing on a piece of paper with pencils and Victor was playing my Martin guitar instead of his real bass and we couldn't really practice. Yeah. So the first actual rehearsal was on stage at the sound check for the TV show. And on that TV show, I was doing other stuff. I was also playing with a string quartet and I was doing solo stuff and I had so- sequenced pieces and the end was going to be this jazz jam with these guys. What was the name of that show again? It's called the Lonesome Pine Special. Oh yeah, okay. And so we come out on stage, you know, having barely, you know, everybody learned the stuff. They knew it. It was only five songs. Um, and we come out on stage, um, you know, uh, after just barely playing together at Soundcheck a little bit. I knew everybody was awesome. Um, and um, and we started playing and the crowd went absolutely wild. I was right. like, we didn't know what to make of it because we, we were just doing this, doing the songs. They went crazy, like from the first, as each person walked on stage, um, they went bananas. And it was like. We were just sort of like deer in the headlights, but we just kept on playing, you yeah. know, and it was, it was a powerful surprise, this band, oh, what yeah. it was, which is so weird. And so anyway, you can see that very first song, which is not slick, yeah, but it's that moment. Um, it's a, a tune called Caravan. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's all, and look at what Victor looks like. He looks like he's made of muscle. He just looks like huge. The, the camera yeah. made him. I mean, he was very muscular back then. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, everybody's playing great, and it's, it's a moment. So Howard Levy was in the group for what 
How three long, years. actually? Only three, three years. Yeah. So he then was it was there. Trio for a while. Yeah. And then Jeff Coffin came in in the late well, We 90s. had a variety of people before, before oh, Jeff. Really? We had a okay. variety of people. We had Sam Bush in the band, Stuart Duncan. Edgar Meyer came out for some dates. Uh, we had Paul McCandless in the band for a couple of years. And, um, and then... Uh, and then uh, we uh, invited Jeff to sit in at a gig, and, and he was going to guest like all these other people had guested with us. Yeah. And he just kept staying. Okay, hey, come, come out on the next tour. Oh, this yeah, is yeah. fun. Come out for the next tour. We'd been t- we were tired of being a trio. It was, we, we had done it. We figured out we could do it. People liked it. We liked it. But it was, it was time for something, something else. So we went through all these people before, before we found Jeff. And, and um, a lot of them were great. Um, I would say that uh, Paul was great, but he was so... Um, connected to the sound of the group Oregon that yeah. um, we were looking for something a little less known um, wanted it to be like something brand new so Jeff joined and, and, um, and was with us for 14 years right and then we were going, went on an extended hiatus and that's when uh, when Leroy died yeah. and uh, he, he took the job with Dave Matthews right he asked me what to do I said take the job yeah, I said I don't know if we're getting gig. back together we'd already made seven records together with Jeff he never intended to have saxophone in the band for that long right. or you know, ever really, but it ended up being awesome. But uh, and then the guys said, um, "Let's um, get Howard. See if Howard wants to come back." And a couple of years later, we were ready to do something. Yeah, and we did so. We went back in that direction. And Howard comes out with you guys now, and you yeah. guys go out. Oh wow! Cool. Ever since then, he's been uh, basically the guy. And so we've been back in the original band now for I don't know six, seven years. Yeah, I love love Jeff's playing. I love both of them. But Jeff, we've gotten to work with. A lot, you know, with DMB, but also with Soul Live, he's come and jammed, jammed with us quite a bit. He's got such a great sense of time. So when he yeah. plays, he plays like almost like we talked about. Tony Rice can make you play better. Jeff makes you play better because mm. his, his rhythm is just so locked in. Now Howard can make you play diff- better in a different way because you never know what he's going to play. Yeah. It might not be the most precise thing in the world, but you'll never hear the same thing twice. It's unbelievable. There's the sheer amount of ideas that pour out of this guy yeah um and um and it's not about precision it's about flow with him so it 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 requires different you know different um a different approach from me and from everybody but uh with howard it's more it's more like anything can happen and and any of us could play something we never played because he's he's like an instigator hey right right i'm going and I'll, what am yeah. i gonna do after that well i don't know <laughs> I don't. but with jeff we would more lock into okay this is the kind of how jeff's gonna play it yeah yeah he, play, he plays with a lot of variety but it would be a certain be usually a lot of funk and a lot of old jazz sound and mm-hmm. a lot of uh you know, rhythm and blues and, and cool, you know, all kinds of cool stuff, but you kind of had an idea what it was going to be. Right. Harmonically. And Howard has done something with the harmonica that is just, I mean, playing all the, those melodies and, and keeping up with those lines on a harmonica has got to be. Yeah. It's crazy. It's, it, so he really hard. is a mutant. He really is a mutant. He has, uh, and he can do that and be playing in one key on the harmonica and another key on the piano and be yeah. playing simultaneously in harmony with himself. And he plays a lot of instruments you don't hear about him playing right. as well. So there's a lot to this cat. Um, yeah. He's just a, a wealth of musical energy. And so Chick heard us with him um, when we did some opening. We opened for Return to Forever a couple of times, and, and we had been doing a lot of duo gigs. And yeah. and he was like, oh, we got a piano player now because he didn't really he didn't remember the original band or whatever. But yeah. and he checked us out and he said. Yeah, I'd keep that piano player. <laughs> yeah, so that guy's that's that guy's cool, you know. Yeah, yeah. Coming from Chick, that's pretty uh 
Yeah, that's that's cool because I because I'm praise. sure for him as much as he's not about to join the Flectons, part of him's going well. I, you know, I, I I know he would have an idea of how he would want to play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like I would if I heard another band with a banjo in it, I would know how how I'd want to play. And yeah, for me yeah. to like the banjo player, I mean, I like a lot of players, but I might have an idea of you know how I would do it. I can't help it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, I have to ask you one thing. You've had. <laughs> so many incredible collaborative experiences on stage and in the studio. Um, can you pick somebody that you have not collaborated with that you would love to collaborate out one that's still alive and one that's, that's no longer with us. I mean, I always thought it would be fun to play with Pat Metheny that mm. we would find some common ground, but it hasn't happened and he hasn't seemed to be uh, open to it, which is okay. Um, yeah. I love Lena Lukey. Mm, me too. Like, um, yeah. And we got together once and did a little something together that, to me, was really interesting. Um, I would love to do more with him because that African side and the jazz side yes. and the band would be a really neat thing to explore. And great singer. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's that, too. But then yeah. um, and there's another guy um, that I started to explore with. And then we had to stop as the covid thing came, which is uh, Edmar Castaneda, okay. who's the Colombian harp player. OK. He's unbelievable. Uh, plays an electric harp. Um, he's very dynamic. He does a lot of physical wild stuff with it. Very rhythmically powerful. Right. Um, and we got together and did a, a Big Ears show together. And the idea was that we would start doing some duo stuff. So he's somebody I'm excited about. Cool. Exploring with. But um, I don't know. And there's some, the people that I love the best, I don't really think I'd be good enough to play with. Like Charlie Parker. Right. Is just, you know, I don't know how I would fit into that. But I mean, I'd like to be a fly on the wall and watch him play because yeah. that guy blew my mind. And yeah. um, a lot of the people that I really wanted to play with, I've gotten to play with. Because I went to being a kid and being in love with Sam Bush and Jerry Douglas and David Grisman and Tony Rice and getting to be a peer with them. And then getting, you know, falling in love with guys like Branford Marsalis and, and Chick Corea. And, yeah. Uh, even John McLaughlin and getting to play with those guys and um, having that experience. So uh, now I'm playing with younger people more, and I'm loving playing with like Chick- like with like uh, Chris Thiele or yeah. or uh, Molly Tuttle and and uh, and Billy Strings and and other uh, and Ed, Ed Moore is younger too. So um, yeah, so I'm not giving you satisfaction. I mean, I'd love to play with Herbie. I think it'd be a lot yeah. of fun to. And, no, these you know, are all these are all great. Um, Strength in Numbers, again, it was like one of my favorite groups. And I was like, I wanted to also ask how that did, that did that come together just from from jam sessions? Um, well, we we ended up being sort of the obvious people um, yeah. in Nashville to, to, to be playing together. So in the studios, a lot of times it would be Jerry and um, and, and Mark on all these sessions out of, out of Nashville through the 80s. And then on Bluegrass Records, two people, if they could get them, that's who they would always try to get. Except Edgar yeah. was the new, the new cat. So Edgar got us together to play uh, a show. He, he's the one who first imagined this lineup yeah. as being an incredible lineup in particular. Although we'd all played together in all kinds of combinations. And we did this show called Summer Lights. And people went crazy for it. Yeah. Again, it was a surprise. Because um, it was very esoteric music. But people really went for it. And then uh, I was in with Telluride at that point, And I said to the promoter, Hey, how about instead of the Telluride, you know, jam set that you do, why don't you let us do a set together as this band, Sam, Jerry, uh, you know, Mark and Edgar and me. And, and, and we did kind of the thing we did it, uh, for, um, uh, for summer lights and it, it, it rocked and it became an every year thing. We would, we play there every year with that band. And then, um, some of the guys had record deals on MCA and, and, uh, 
and Warner Brothers and offered us a chance to make a record with that band. And I think Mark may have had something to do with it. It was on the Master Series. Um, but before we did that, we made a record for Edgar, his first record uh, called Unfolding. And that was basically that band as well. So that's a, a record of strength and numbers that a lot of people don't know about where it was all Edgar's tunes. Right. Uh, and he was calling the shots and I produced it. Man, I gotta, I, I gotta go back to that one. I, for some reason, that that wasn't on my radar. It may not be available. I would see if yeah. you can find it. It's very I'm, special. I'm gonna look uh, early, it was his, you know, coming out party, and he, and we were the band he wanted for it. And so he, and so then it just turned into, yeah. Then we made that record uh, on uh, the Master Series and uh, and did a few gigs, and that was it. Where was that actually recorded? That record here in Nashville. At so Nightingale. it was okay. It was called Telluride Sessions, but it was. We wanted to call the band. Uh, um, wanted to call. Well, how did it work? There already was someone called Strength in Numbers, and we couldn't call the record Strength in Numbers. Oh, I see. How did it work? I can't remember. There was some kind of an issue, um, but that was always the the idea. I had that idea of that name because I realized that all of us wanted to go out and play instrumental music, but none of us really had a big enough name to draw a big crowd. But if you put us all together, yeah. That might be a different story, and that was basically the concept of the Flectones too. I had learned I can go out and do banjo jazz shows with good players, but but I, I wasn't a strong enough draw or a strong enough player. But if everybody in the band was a knockout, that was a different that story, and they brought their own audiences. You know? Well, my graduation day in ni- of high school in 1994, me and my two best friends got in a crappy old Volvo and drove from Vermont to Telluride, Colorado to see strength in numbers oh. <laughs> essentially i mean there was a lot of crazy adventures that happened along the way but that was like our goal it was like uh um you know our our, our motivation so that was a uh, and, th- and that whole weekend man just being in telluride and we like camped out and i hope that wasn't the year where edgar got hand cramps and mark walked off the stage and it was kind of the end of the band i we- wonder if that was that year do you i i because I don't think you guys did it again after that. I had to commit to the band, too. It was like I felt like the Flectones had all moved to Nashville uh, and taken on this band with me. And, yeah. I, and I, so I stopped taking dates. And that was the point when Newgrass Revival had broken up and Sam was open to playing with Strength in Numbers. Yeah. And, and Jerry and Edgar were really into it. But I couldn't do it because I felt like I needed to whatever pull I had, I needed to put it into the Flectones, whatever yeah. draw I had. And so I, I made it decision not to play with anybody else but the Flectones for the first few years. Right, And right. it wasn't until Victor started doing other things that I finally felt I had permission to go out and do things with other people. Right, right. And does Victor still live in Nashville? Yeah. He does. Victor and Victor, man. Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. Howard's in, uh, Howard never moved. He always lived in Chicago. Right, right. Random other fact, he used to play with my uncle's blues band back oh, in yeah. the day. <laughs> yep, called Redwood Landing. I believe it. He played so many people. Yeah. He was with John Prine for his early, big, oh, successful really? years. Yeah. Wow, I didn't know that either. Um, so you guys were hopefully going to get the Flectones back together when things... Uh... Yeah, we have dates on the book to just see whether they happen. You know, it's uh, the dates we have start maybe in April and May, that kind of time. Um, cool. But um, it'll feather in with all the other things that are on, on you know, on the schedule. So Well, usually at this point, I like try to shout out something that's coming up, but you have like so many billions of things. Um, do you have anything coming like that's being released uh, soon? Well, the, the last thing would be worth talking about because it really didn't get its due, which is this um, Throw Down Your Heart box set. Oh, cool. Which is this, uh, uh, it's uh, uh, three CDs and... Uh, 
it's got the new Tumani Diabate duo album and the video, Throw Down Your Heart video, and an hour of extra footage from Africa. Oh, and, really? And, and the two Throw Down Your Heart CDs. Uh, okay, well, I'm definitely it. getting oh. that because I'm like obsessed with the movie. So it's, and it, that has like more footage and all that. Great. An extra hour of footage, yeah. Great. So there's a lot there. So that, but, but it really came out right when the pandemic started, and really there was ah. no tour, there was no discussion, nothing really happened. So, but I like for people to know about that. And then down the line, this bluegrass project is going to be called My Bluegrass Heart, and it's got everybody on it. Uh, well, not everybody. There's always people that you miss, but a lot of really important people for me, like like Chris Thiele and Billy Strings, but Sam Bush and Jerry Douglas and Edgar and oh wow, uh, Michael Cleveland and Sierra Hall and Molly Tuttle and um, just just a lot of great great musicians and that was recorded before, before covid just, yeah just before pretty much generally all in the room together or yeah, all live. yeah it's all live i did some cool. editing after the fact and, and a lot of mixed work and editing after everyone left i just basically we just played the song for you know the morning and did another song in the afternoon and, and i just you know tried to make sure we had everything and yeah. then i i just went digging yeah and with a band like that it wasn't too hard you know you just dig around there's you know, Stuart Duncan's going to play. You do 15 takes. There's going to be six amazing fiddle solos in there. Right, right. Know, for each guy. So it wasn't it wasn't a uh, wasn't hard to to pull it together. And a lot of times they were just amazing takes. So it's been a joy, and I'll miss it. And I'm almost done done with Great. the last. Well, time. I look forward to hearing that. And uh, thank you so much for spending the time uh, and indulging with me. It's been it's been great talking with you, man. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for doing all the homework on it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's I've been doing homework. <laughs> For the past, I've been a fan for so long, so um, it's my pleasure. I want to thank Bela for taking the time and being on the show today. He's an incredible artist, and it was so cool to catch up with him, always inspired by his words and by his music. But before we go, I'm going to play a track off of the project that we speak about in the interview called Strength in Numbers, which uh, was an incredible all-star band of great Nashville bluegrass players and they kind of jump into different genres on this album but this track really stood out to me and it also features Mark O'Connor on guitar this one's called Slopes
Eric Krasno Plus One is hosted by me, Eric Krasno. Executive producers are RJB and Christina Collins. Audio production by Matt Dwyer. Produced by myself and Ben Baruch of 1111 Group. All original music is by me, and most of which are instrumentals from my album, Telescope, under the artist name Kraz. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email Kraz plus one at Gmail. That's K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E at gmail.com. Send me some questions. Maybe I'll answer them on air. Send me suggestions of other guests you'd like to hear on the show. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.